Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Johann Galtung. He is the founder of the discipline of peace studies. He founded the International Peace Research Institute in Oslo in 1959 and the Journal of Peace Research in 1964. He has helped found dozens of peace centers. He has taught peace studies at universities all over the world and mediated hundreds of conflicts. He is the author or co-author of over 160 books and is cited and discussed in, it is safe to say, many thousands more. He is the founder of Transcend Peace University and Transcend International. You can go to transcend.org to learn more. Johann Galtung, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure, David, indeed. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I'm very glad to, and there are more topics I want to ask you about than we will possibly fit in, so I think we'll have to start with the most serious one, or the most current one. What do we do about ISIS, Iraq, and Syria? (laughs) If you look at it from from an ISIS point of view, the question is, what do we do about the West? That is always intervening and interfering in Muslim and Arab affairs and colonizing us and so on. So as usual, an issue has two sides, or maybe more than two sides. And um, they are trying to do something about us, and there are people in the West trying to do something about them. So you ask the question, (laughs) what is going to happen, or something like that. Well, first of all, take note of one point. Syria and Iraq were established by betrayal of the Arab people. They were asked in 1915 by Lord Sykes, the British Foreign Minister, and Picot, the French Foreign Minister, to rebel against the Ottoman Empire. And if they so did and managed to get rid of it, they would be rewarded with freedom. Instead, France secured for itself two colonies, Syria and Lebanon, and England secured for itself two colonies, Palestine and Iraq. And most of the problems with what we today associate with Middle East is has to do with the betrayal. And it is known as such. Any Arab child knows about this. Very few people in the West even know about it. That's the point of departure. You would expect that there would be an effort not only to liberate Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Palestine, from Paris and London. That happened. But the whole structure was wrong. It had nothing to do with what was there before, which was the big carpet of what the what is called Vilayat, the provinces, with lots of local autonomy, autonomy so-called millets. And that was the Ottoman Empire. And when you say ISIS, be aware of the fact that it is not only Islamic State, Iraq, Syria, but it's also the dream of re-establishing a caliphate, the kind of carpet I mentioned with provinces. They may kill ISIS soldiers, and the experience is that if you kill one, you get ten the next day, because this is very deeply ingrained in them. The liberation from the Sykes-Picot structure, if you will, and reinventing the caliphate without Istanbul, not from Istanbul, but so far, basically, for Sunni Islam. 
Well, the question that is is always put to me and 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 has been put to me by you is uh, beyond not killing because killing makes it worse. You generate 10 new enemies for every one you kill even according to the US generals. What do you do instead? What should you do instead? You've you you've given me some some words of wisdom in the past. You know, our politicians in Washington and and London and Paris don't much mind our protesting. What they mind is our having a different plan. But well, what is that plan, and how do we make it happen? What what should we be doing instead of dropping bombs on ISIS? I think one has first of all to simply understand what's happening. So what is called ISIS, point one, is retribution vengeance for the American atrocities in Iraq. The terrible violence in connection with the invasion and afterwards. The invasion, March 19, 2003, more than 12 12 years ago. And from a Muslim point of view, retribution is an obligation, but it should be moderate. So they define the decapitation as a moderate retribution for the, by some counts, one million that have been killed in Iraq since the early 1990s. So that's point one. Bad enough. Point two is, if you will, simply to get rid of Iraq and uh, rid of Iraq and Syria as entities. And that has to do with undoing Sykes-Picot. So that is why the acronym ISIS was chosen to start with. Now what would they like to set in place? Well, they would like to have a carpet of vilayat. That carpet in Islam has a name, it's called an ummah community of the believers, and it is dotted with mosques and sharia, meaning courts, sharia courts, and the head of each local community is an imam, and ramenio. But when you then ask, what can we do? Well, use the Western military defensively. Protect the minorities or the groups that ISIS, let's call it that for the time being, are attacking, protect them. That is done by parachuting down troops with not necessarily long-distance weapons, but simply protecting. A ring, a circle around them. It's amazing to see that with all that military competence of Pentagon, the only thing they seem to be able to invent is offensive use of the military, killing people and destroying infrastructure and so on. So that's the first thing that should have been done from the very beginning. And you can even hold the Western military responsible for not having done it. Then we come to the third aspect of ISIS. And the third aspect of ISIS is, of course, the Caliphate. That's a dream. The Caliphate collapsed in 1924 as an outcome of Sykes-Picot. It collapsed. If you could imagine that the Vatican collapses, there would be strong Catholic forces to restore it. And if you could imagine that some force in the world is systematically bombing Catholic countries, then you have an image of what happens in the Middle East. The Caliphate collapsed, 
and then bombing of one Muslim country after the other. For the West to believe that they can do that and the people in that region will simply accept it hands down is an unbelievable naivete. It shows how extremely badly informed they are. Something like ISIS was the most predictable thing you can imagine. The, uh, the and then comes, you see, the point that the caliphate. Have a look at, Google it, and have a look at the old caliphate. The caliphate known as also the Ottoman Empire. That was the, if you will, secular side of it, military, economic side of it, political. The cultural side was the caliphate. Well, it's quite big. But take note of one point. What the struggle is really about is who is going to rule and to run the most sacred parts of Islam, namely the mosques in Mecca and Medina. The Saudi royalty seem to prefer to be away and swim in the Riviera with about 1,000 invited friends. And they're not even able to control stampedes when the Muslims are running in connection with the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Not even that. So there was a public opinion poll in Saudi Arabia recently. And people were asked, who is today the true carrier of Islam? 92% said the Islamic State. Okay. I think the real struggle is not in some villages and some districts in Iraq and Syria, where the Islamic State has, to their, in their words, liberated a territory the size of about Great Britain. The real struggle is about Saudi Arabia, with 92% seemingly being in favor of the Islamic State, you can make some predictions about how that would end up. And then comes to my mind, in my view, with my experience in this, and the Skyping and the conversations I have with them, a fourth aspect, they are fully aware of Sunni Shia, and they want to get rid of it. They simply want to build a bridge. Don't be surprised if there is some kind of accord between Iran and Sunni Islam. Don't be surprised. They know perfectly well that the West makes use of this twist, this divide, from the years after the death of the Prophet. And that does not get into that. I don't think there will be a theological union it could be a military, economic, political union. The way Catholics and Protestants in Europe came together in the European Community Union and NATO. A defense alliance against Orthodox Europe, headed by Russia. And of course, Russia then dominating Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Okay, you have an image, and... Um, if you want to try to destroy the Islamic State, you are up against quite a lot. And uh, I don't think there's any way in which the West is able to do it. They can do some bombing in Syria and Iraq. That is only touching the tip of the iceberg. Defensive use of the military, and then you simply enter into dialogue with them. And I think the basic dialogue issue, since they want to reconstruct the caliphate, of 1924 when there was no Israel, 
the basic dialogue is you would be whether there is nevertheless space for some kind of Israel in all of this. And it seems to me that the West could gamble on two strong cards on the Muslim side. One of them is the tradition. I mentioned the word millet, autonomous of different religion and language inside the Ottoman Empire, and define Israel as something similar to that. And the other one is that Islam, being the latest of the three Abrahamic religions, is much more knowledgeable of and much more tolerant of Judaism and Christianity than vice versa. And I'm not quite sure that the West possesses that skill today. We're speaking with Johan Galtung. You can find him at transcend.org. Johan, it's, it's very interesting to me that you propose using the U.S. military defensively, uh, your word, in, uh, in countries thousands of miles away to defend uh, threatened populations, because this is, of course, what the, the United States government and the United Nations tell us that the U.S. military is doing in many, many cases. Uh, we were told that uh, the U.S. and allies needed to go into Libya to defend helpless people, and they quickly turned that into a overthrow of the government. We were told that they needed to go in and defend helpless people on a mountaintop uh, against ISIS, and that quickly became an ongoing, endless effort to overthrow ISIS while trying to overthrow the government of Syria. Uh, is, it, is, is it really feasible that we could get the U.S. military to, to go into a, a foreign country thousands of miles away uh, and actually behave as you want them to, and and how would we go about making that happen? Technically, it's of course totally feasible. <clears throat> you need planes, parachutes, parachuting down 1,000 troops or whatever, for each threatened part, constituting a circle with adequate arms. That's what you need. Technically, that's totally feasible. But take note, the question is whether that's in the mind of the U.S. military. They know how to do it. But I think the U.S. military is imitating Christianity in a fundamentalist sense. That Jesus Christ came up from the dead and took his position next to the Father to punish and judge living and dead. Now Washington seems to see itself as chosen by God. And for that reason, having the duty of judging and punishing. And defensive defense doesn't sound like judging and punishing. It sounds like defending victims, not judging perpetrators and punishing them. So I think they are simply on a totally wrong track, and it unfortunately has to do with the deep culture of the U.S. military. Quite sure it would be easy to reach them by a dialogue and debate and protests and so on. What I would wish to see, David, if it is possible at all, would be U.S. peace movement circling the Pentagon, circling the White House with big banners. Use the military defensively. Protect the exposed minorities. Things of that kind. Of course, comes from my general experience all these years, 60 years with mediation in very hot waters, to put it mildly. The um, Western powers, 
Vedic tradition of colonialism intervention. United States alone, having intervened militarily something like 248 times since Thomas Jefferson started in 1805, incidentally also in Libya. That's quite a lot. That, that tradition is so strong, and you can critique it, that doesn't make the slightest impact on them. They kick back. But if you have a plan B, then it's better than their violent plan A. That has an impact on them, to co-opt you. And one effort to co-opt the peace forces in the U.S. also cost the United States Institute of Peace. <laughs> I think it's a bad joke, but let's leave that aside. The basic point about it is, it has to be brought to the attention, not only of the people high up in Washington, but of the general population, that this is a way of thinking and a way out. Of course, you and I, Johan, see the endless, endless wars and the idea of launching a counterproductive assault on ISIS as something uh, without end. But I'm afraid if you went to the U.S. military and the U.S. government and the U.S. corporate media and said, let's use the military purely defensively, they would say, well, that will be endless. You will be defending these helpless people from ISIS endlessly for eternity unless you do something about ISIS. Uh, what would be done, what could be done simultaneously? Negotiate. Negotiate with them. Simply try to find out what does this caliphate look like. Will there be space for this and that? Negotiate peacefully. But you first have to recognize from the very beginning that if we in the West, the Catholic part of it, have the right to have a Vatican that stretches all over the world, they also have a right to have a caliphate. There's no way in which one can deny them that. No way in the name of freedom of culture, freedom of speech, all of that, freedom of religion, they are entitled to it. And I have indicated that one basic issue is, is the space for an Israel. Not an expanding, conquering Israel from <laughs> the river in Africa to Euphrates, as it says in the Gospel in the in Genesis 1, in the beginning of Genesis, but uh, in a sense, is there a space for something more modest? What would it look like? My experience talking with people in Islamic countries is that I have talked, for instance, with people in Hamas, in the Gaza Strip, I talked with um, Hezbollah people in Lebanon. My experience is that the answer is yes. They can accept an Israel. 1967 borders is the slogan, which Netanyahu, of course, rejects completely. You may have to accept that one. That's considerably better than nothing. You see that there are sacred Judaic places on the West Bank and have some Israeli cantons on the West Bank. And there are very dear places for the Palestinians in Northwest Israel and have some Palestinian cantons there. And you would weave the two states solidly together. But the way to peace and security passes through recognition of Israel. Oh, Palestine. 
I, I'm afraid a great many people will say, as, as is always said about every looming opponent in a war, these are the type of people you cannot negotiate with. Uh, it's said about Russia, it's said about Iran, uh, but it's said much more successfully about ISIS. It is very easy to tell uh, people in the United States, for example, that ISIS are, are not quite human. They are, they are madmen, and you cannot sit down and talk and negotiate with them. Yeah, uh, you said a great amount of people. Let us be honest. You mean a great amount of Americans. Americans are also people, but they're people of a very special kind, and they have a tendency to etiquette others and to be anti-others. Anti-terrorist, anti-communist, and by saying that, they have ruled out those people from the very beginning. Look, during the whole Cold War of 40 years, I spent considerable part of my life having dialogues with communists, and quite successfully so, playing some role in what ultimately happened. I'm now having dialogues with so-called terrorists, be they Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or whatever. And I have even had some dialogues in Pentagon and State Department. You see, you can sit down and talk and I can give you an opening question, which is so enticing that most people will immediately jump on it. I would ask, for instance, what does the Middle East look like where you would like to live? What does Afghanistan look like where you would like to live? And listen to the flow of words, and you hear a lot of very reasonable things, and some of them problematic. But don't for a second think that you cannot sit down and talk if, if the United States does not heed your advice and continues down its war-making path and launches an all-out war on ISIS, will NATO join in? Will Europe join in? Will there be support for something that can be labeled international? I would say not. They will not join in because they live a little bit closer to it and are more realistic and a not-so-fundamentalist Christian as the top of the United States leadership is. No, you see it already in Ukraine. They're not joining. The United States wants considerably harsher measures, and they're not joining, particularly France and Germany. What about France and ISIS? That is, I was just going to say it, a special issue because there is Syria involved, which was an old French colony. I agree with that, but you were mentioning NATO. Yeah. And uh, the only country that has been really following the United States is Russia. And that is not exactly because of ISIS. I think we all agree that that's more or less a pretext. It is more because the only Russian base outside the old Soviet Union is in Syria, as opposed to at least 800 U.S. bases outside U.S. territory. Yeah, I, I'm so afraid... That's a major factor, and a couple of other factors, too, but uh, let's leave them aside. Syria is complicated, and I think it will end up as a loose federation where the old province structure, the Vilayat, will be basic units. You see, Assad stands for the Alawite minority dictatorship. And the other side, the Sunni side, stands, well, as 
most say, for the majority dictatorship. Assad has shown more tolerant, tolerance of minorities in his dictatorship with the military system than is indicated from the Sunni side. Well, I think the choice is a bad one. And the possibility of a loose federation with many parts would, in a sense, meet quite a lot of demands. It would also be an inherent preparation for what, to my mind, is inevitable, namely some reconstruction of the old caliphate based on these vilayat, these provinces. Johan, what you say about Europe is very encouraging, uh, but what about Norway? Because you were, uh, we were talking yesterday and you were uh, critiquing my uh, article I wrote about the Vikings and the Vikings having become less violent, and you were suggesting that maybe Norway today is not actually less violent than the Vikings. Can, can you explain? I'm very ashamed of my country because it was willing to do what very few countries are willing to do, to kill for United States, and they did it in Libya. The Norwegian prime minister was called by the French president, Sarkozy, and asked whether the Norwegian Air Force could be helpful. And after that, he was called by Obama. Now, ours is a small country, and it is very obvious that the Prime Minister, who is now Secretary-General of NATO, that was the reward he got for all of this, was very flattered. They had 660 sorties, and the bombing of a period of seven months. In the beginning, coordinates. Later on, they were bombing a territory the size of southern Norway, according to a more or less defecting general on the Norwegian side, and literally speaking, bombing everything that moved, in other words, the old Vietnam strategy from the U.S. I'm ashamed of it. The Norwegian leadership knows perfectly well that it was not a success, and said, and that is one of the most horrible statements I have heard from my government, that it was an excellent opportunity for exercise for the Norwegian Air Force. Now, you don't kill people for exercise. Exercise you do in some exercise place. And the guy who said it was the very same prime minister who became secretary general of NATO. So I think Norway is now almost the only country, and I am not so sure they will do it again willing to kill for the U.S. That doesn't mean that the U.S. doesn't kill. But poor United States, they now have to do the killing themselves. And by some counts, they are doing that in 134 countries by sharpshooters. The drones are not that important. The local CIA points out who is to be eliminated. And the sharpshooter takes an ordinary plane with a long thing checked in, an extremely good rifle with telesight and everything, and they are very professional, can do it at 1.2 kilometers, for instance, taking into account, let us say, some little whiff of wind after 800 meters. I mean, no doubt about their professionalism, but it is warfare, and by some count in 134 countries. In the old days, and they were not that far away, 
the U.S. could call upon local elites to do the killing for them. That is much less the case, and will be even less than less the case. There, there is good news and bad news in that, and we are going to have to have you back on the program to go further. Johan Galtung, you can find out more about Johan at transcend.org. Thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. And thank you so much for having me. And goodbye, United States, as imperial power. You are making yourself irrelevant with your stupid point post. <laughs> thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.